All right. So, Bob, what will I see? Well, I see, uh, you want to go to, what view should I use? I'm seeing your wife, which is fine. You want to do a speaker uh, gallery view or, there you go. Well, good morning, everyone. We are July 26th. We are returning to our study in uh, the Reign of Life, Romans 5 through 8. And we're going to deviate from the handout that was on the webpage for Romans 7. And we're going to have a midterm exam. There you are. Midterm exam. Now, if I had my computer, I would have sent this to the webpage, but I was not able to. So you just, I'll repeat every question twice. This is a checkup to see not how much you know, but how well I have taught you, right? And we're basically going to focus on what Romans uh, 5 and 6 have taught us. I've got about 23 questions. They're true and false. So I want you to think about the answers. And um, here we go. Oh, let me pray for us. Lord, we're so grateful for this morning, for your mercies, your love, your presence with us. Jesus, you reign over all things. Best of all, you have conquered our rebellious hearts. You've made them your home. You've made us new and you. You've delivered us from death, from sin, from Satan, uh, into the glory of uh, your wonderful kingdom. We're alive in that kingdom. We're new creations. Thank you. And you've given us a heart to know and, and ears to hear and eyes to see. So by the Holy Spirit, may he teach us and help us and use this little exercise to drive into our hearts what is true, what we've learned from Romans 5 and 6. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I may remind people as they ding their way in um, some of the latecomers. Here's our midterm exam, true or false. Number one, we are justified by trusting a promise. We are justified by trusting a promise. Okay, that is a true statement. You know that we, Paul, began Romans 5 by saying, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A synonym for faith is trusting a promise. The New Testament uh, is, is Paul particularly is, is, uh, is driving home this difference between trusting ourselves, trusting our efforts, trusting our record, our performance, our works, Versus Christ's performance, works, efforts. And justification is God promises that when we lean on Christ's works, he accepts us as if we've done everything Jesus has done. That's the glory of the gospel. God promises that when we believe in him, we trust the work of Christ. God sees us as if we've kept the law perfectly as Jesus did. We're righteous in the sight. We've, our sins have been uh, paid for and buried with Christ. Therefore, we are sinless in God's sight, ultimately judicially. So that is a true statement. We are justified by trusting a promise. And, and for, if you've never trusted that promise, you can ask God for the grace to do so, and he will give it. Ultimately, the ability to trust the promise is from the Lord anyway. He creates that faith in our hearts. So that's a true statement. We are justified by trusting a promise. Number two. True or false? Our righteousness is infused into us as we grow in grace. Our righteousness 
is infused into us as we grow in grace. We get more and more righteous, as it were, as we grow in grace and lean on the sacraments and avail ourselves of the means of grace. True or false, our righteousness is infused into us as we grow in grace. That is a false statement. That's actually the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that righteousness is infused. The Reformers were very, very strong to say, no, our righteousness is alien. It comes from outside of us. It's forensic. It is spoken over us. And it is legal. It is, it's courtroom talk. We are declared righteous in God's sight by virtue of being one with Christ, the righteous one. So our righteousness is not infused. It is declared, it is spoken over us. We either have it or we don't. Now, once we have it, we grow in moral righteousness as a matter of sanctification, but our justification is receiving the righteousness of Christ alone, promised to us in the gospel. It's not infused, it is declared. Did you get that one right? Good. Number three, true or false? Those of you joining late, we are uh, diverting from the handout on the webpage from Romans 7. We'll do that next week. We're doing a midterm exam on uh, Romans 5 and 6. Number three, sanctification is punctiliar. Justification is progressive. Now, let me define those two terms so you can get the right answer. Punctiliar means it happens once. Progressive means ongoing. True or false? Sanctification happens once, it's punctiliar. Justification is progressive, it's ongoing. Pretty easy out. Thumbs down, says Frank. That's right. That's a false statement. What we've been saying here is that sanctification is actually progressive. Justification happens once, it's punctiliar. It's a declaration God makes the moment we trust Christ, we believe the gospel, we give our hearts, and we ask Jesus Christ to save us, to become to exercise his lordship in our lives, save us from our sins. At that moment, we are justified. We are adopted. Uh, this is the beautiful fruit of our uh, conversion. So that's a false statement. Although you could say, no, no, Mike, technically, you taught us about definitive sanctification. De remember definitive sanctification? And that's the idea of being set apart once and for all, brought from death to life, slavery to sin, freedom from sin, slavery to Satan, freedom from that, to be in union with Christ. Yes, technically, we are definitively sanctified, set apart, but the normal way we use sanctification is a progressive, ongoing work of the Spirit in us, making us more and more like Christ. Number four, true or false? Adam's one sin ushered into the world physical death and spiritual death for all mankind. True. True statement. Good. Adam's one sin, this is the second half of Romans 5, by this one man's sin, death entered God's pristine creation and all sin, and so death spread to all men. Adam's one sin ushered into the world Physical death, the only reason people die physically is sin, sin is in the world, and spiritual death. That's Romans 5, 12. Paul then contrasts the work of the one man, Adam, with the work of the second man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the true Adam. Fifth question, true or false? 
Spiritual death simply means we are separated from God. True or false? Simply means we're separated from God. I'm getting a thumbs up. So it actually means that, but it means more than that. Spiritual death, you often hear a lot of evangelicals say spiritual death is separation from God. But see, I could be separated from you, like physically right now, separated from you, but panging to be in your presence. Human beings do not pang to be in the presence of God. Spiritual death means that faculty in me that was built for God to have desire for God is gone. I am dead spiritually. I have no appetite for God. And it's even worse than that. I am hostile toward God in my spirit. I really want nothing to do with God. I'm dead. I'm hostile. And that's what creates God's hostility towards us. So spiritual death does mean we're separated from God, but it means more than that. It's worse than that. So if you said true, give yourself a break. Uh, the focus would be there on simply means, no, it actually means more than that. Midterm exam, continuing based on Romans 5 and 6. Question number 6, true or false? Jesus opened a fountain of grace for sinners who trust in him that is always greater than our sin. A fountain of grace was opened by the work of Jesus that is always greater than our sin. That no matter how much you sin, yes, I'm getting some good thumbs up from my audience. Where, uh, this is what Paul says in 520, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Glory to God. You can't out-sin the grace of God. This is the promise. This is our hope. We rest in this because we're going to sin until the day we die. Grace abounded all the more. Okay. And of course, that sets up the question that's being answered in Romans 6. Oh, people can erroneously think, if sin makes grace look greater, and it does, let's go on sinning to make grace even greater. And that's the thinking that Paul attacks beginning in Romans 6. Question 7, true or false? When Paul says we were baptized into Christ, he is referring to being identified with Jesus, not immersed into Jesus. I'll read it again, true or false. In the beginning verses of Romans 6, Paul says you have been baptized into Christ, into his death and resurrection. You've been baptized into Christ. He is referring to being identified with Christ, not immersed into Christ. That's a true statement. That's a true statement. What I'm getting at here is that the New Testament uses the word baptizo in more than one way. It couldn't possibly here mean to be immersed as it, you know, put under water. No one's immersed into Jesus. You weren't immersed into his death. You're identified with him. So baptizo means to be identified with. That's how he's using it in the beginning of Romans 6. This is the, the whole basis of union with Christ. We are identified. We're one with Jesus Christ. So that's a true statement. Uh, 6.3, you who have been baptized into Christ were also baptized into his death. Okay, number eight, true or false, midterm exam. To be in union with Christ means we begin to act like him by the power of the Holy Spirit. To be in union with Christ means 
we begin to act like him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Probably a poorly worded question. By virtue of our union with Christ, what begins? Sanctification, which is beginning to act like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Strictly speaking, union with Christ means this. What's true of him is true of me. Union with Christ. Here's Jesus, here's me. There are ultimately only two humanities, those in solidarity with Adam, spiritually dead, hostile to God, under the wrath of God, slave to sin, or because of your faith, trust in Jesus, in union with Jesus. So union with Christ initially, first off, means what is true of Jesus is correspondingly true of me. From that flows the work of sanctification. You can't be sanctified without union with Christ. So, I put technically false. To be in union with Christ means what's true of him is true of me, both legally and personally. Right? Both legally, the, the righteousness that Jesus Christ earned is credited to you. It's a, judi a judicial declaration. But we're also personally in union with Christ. Paul says you've been, you died with him in his death. You've been raised with him into new life. We'll see a little bit more about that in a, uh, well, that's why Paul calls us a new creation. We've been raised with him to walk in newness of life. Okay? True or false? Number nine. True Christians don't want to sin. So it, it, there you go. Lisa says no. And I agree with Lisa. Here's why. When you're a Christian, is it true that you have new desires not to sin? Of course. But because sin is still present with us, guess what? If you sin, it's because you wanted to. Anytime you sin, it's because you desire to sin. You gave in to the power of involving sin. You didn't have to. You were free from sin. But unfortunately, true Christians want to sin. Yuck. This is why we need confession. This is why we need the means of grace. This is why we need to confess our sins. Unfortunately, true Christians still want to sin. We shouldn't. We should be growing in holiness. The fact is, we do. That's because sin is still with us. And anytime you sin, it's because you desired it. Number 10, true or false? If you're joining us late, this is our Romans 5 and 6 midterm exam. Number 10, true or false? If you've been born again, the person you once were born into this world no longer exists. I'll say it again. If you have been born again, become one with Jesus, the person you were born into this world as, so for me, the Michael Craig Sherrod, born in Baltimore, Maryland, February 22nd, 1956, Women's Hospital in downtown Baltimore, that person no longer exists if you've been born again. It's a true statement. That's what Paul is saying. Romans 6.6, 6, the old man was crucified with Christ. Again, I was born in solidarity with Adam. I was born under the curse. I was born under the law. I was born spiritually dead. I was born blinded by Satan. I was born under the wrath of God. The moment I trusted Christ, that person was crucified with Christ. That per the old man was crucified with him to bring forth a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, he is a new creation. 
So that person no longer exists. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm free from sin. That's the, that's the wonder, the power, the glory of being a believer and what Paul is driving home in Romans 6. If you've been born again, the person you once were before you were converted no longer exists. True. Number 11, true or false. To be in union with Christ means his resurrection power is at work in you. To be in union with Christ means nothing less than the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. Thumbs up. Yes. So we, we Christians, are, we just underutilize all our resources, don't we? We underutilize them. Resurrection power? Oh my goodness. The truth is it has to be accessed. It has to be appropriated. We need to pray it in. We need to seek it. We need to submit to it. We need to ask for it. It doesn't just happen. But that's part of Romans 6. We died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We've been born again by that resurrection power. That power is still within us. And that's why where Paul's going to go in Romans 8, he's going to say, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So it is the Spirit of God bringing us the resurrection power of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Good. Uh, number 12, true or false? The guarantee that your body will be raised on the day of judgment is grounded in your union with Christ. The guarantee, your ultimate hope, the certainty that on the final day, that day when Jesus returns, your body will be raised and become an imperishable body like Christ. That is grounded in union with Christ. True. That is true. It's one of the ultimate blessings that flow from our union with Christ. Again, if it's true of Christ, it's true of you. He lives in an indestructible fleshly body right now. Jesus is in a fleshly body, the same body that ate with the disciples after the resurrection, the same body that was able to pass through the walls and rooms, the same body that cooked breakfast for the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee there after the resurrection. That indestructible body that cannot sin, that cannot die, that cannot experience sorrow, sadness, anything, that is our future hope. That's the guarantee your body will be raised in your union with Christ. 13, true or false? The first imperative in the book of Romans is to think a certain way. Okay? Yes, true. It's verse 11 of chapter 6. The first thing we're commanded to do, that's an imperative, the first thing we're commanded to do in the book of Romans is consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. What does that tell you? It tells you that even though we're born again and we're a new creation, it, doesn't, it isn't necessarily our impulse to think deliberately and consciously on that fact. So we've got to, and you'll hear this in, in the sermon this morning, we have to rehearse the facts in our minds. We're constantly preaching to ourselves. So the first imperative in the book of Romans is 
consider yourselves, reckon yourselves dead to sin. You, you and I would do well to wake up every morning, throw our feet on the floor, and before we get up, say, I'm dead to sin, I'm alive in Christ. I'm dead to sin, I'm alive in Christ. And then the second imperative is in verse 12. Let's see, this is a mystery. Oh, I skipped that one, didn't I, Frank? Did I skip one? Is that what you're trying to point out to me? Yes. No, Mike, I, I was just uh, answering a question that came up on the chat. Okay, all right, all right, thank you. Because I thought I had a, a statement. Yeah, I do 18s already, but not yet. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, jump, jump in if, if, if you need to. The second imperative after consider yourself dead to sin is don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Why does Paul say that? Because sin wants to reign, and we're in this constant warfare. 14. True or false? That sin no longer reigns in us means we can lead a sinful, sinless life. <laughs> I see some anti-perfectionism thumbs going down. That's a false statement. I'll read it again. It's false. That sin no longer mean, reigns means we can live sinlessly. We do not believe that. Uh, we're going to sin until the day we die. What is our relationship to sin? The penalty of sin is paid. You'll never face the penalty of your sins. The power of sin is broken. You're no longer a slave to sin. It's still there. It wants to reign, but you don't have to let it reign. But the presence of sin is very much still with us to the day we die. James says in James chapter 3, we all stumble in many ways. First, 1 Peter 2.11, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. You and I are at war with our fleshly lusts. They get the better of us, often, way too often. This is why, obviously, we need the means of grace. We need to struggle with each other in our fight against sin, not against each other in our struggle with sin. So that sin no longer reigns in us means we live a sinless life? No. Some Christian theologians have taught that. That is called perfectionism. It is uh, not, uh, I don't think, the teaching of the Bible or um, certainly not the Reformed faith. 16. True or false? 15, sorry. 15. Through union with Christ, the Christian is struggling to be free. <clears throat> struggling to be free. Now that you're a Christian, you're struggling to be free. It's a false statement. Christians are free to struggle. We've been set free to struggle with sin. Before we were believers, there really was no struggle. We were slaves to sin. We had to give in to sin. It always got the better of us. We maybe not even know the difference. But so in religious people, moralism is struggling to be free, making every effort to become that person God wants you to be. No, the gospel is... You're accepted, now do this, not do this to be accepted. God accepts us in Christ. We're free. We have nothing to prove, nothing to lose. Our acceptance is purchased for us. It's done. Our acceptance before God is in heaven. It's Jesus. There he is. God looks at his son and he sees you. He is satisfied. You owe him nothing. So now we're free to struggle without fear of condemnation. Now we're wrestling with sin. It's going to get the better of us. It grieves us. One of the marks of a growing Christian is 
deepening our grief over our sin, for what it does to the heart of Jesus, what it does to others, how it, it puts a blight on uh, the image of God in us. We grow in our grief over sin, but we're still going to struggle with sin. Uh, we're never going to lead a sinless life, but we are free to struggle, okay? And, and we're free to fail and be frail because Jesus has come into our junk. He's, he's not going to despise us. He understands. He sympathizes. He knows our weakness. He faced every temptation you face. He faced it. It, 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 it sought to draw him to that point, to cross the line to sin. He felt the full weight of it, and he never sinned. You and I have never felt that, right? Because when we've been tempted, at some point we give in. Jesus exceeded that to the point of never sinning. Therefore, he earned a righteousness with which he could go to the cross and substitute himself for us to give us that righteousness and to impute uh, his death to our account. So, through union with Christ, the Christian is free to struggle. 16. Checking my time here. Okay, 940. 16. True or false? When Paul says we are free from the law, he means... It doesn't matter how we live because Jesus has forgiven us all of our sins. When Paul says we are free from the law, he means it doesn't matter how you live. But don't worry about it. You don't need to worry about the Ten Commandments. You're forgiven. Be carefree, happy, go lucky. Oh, yeah, just go for it. Be true to yourself. No, that's not what he means. To be free from the law means what? It means that what I owed God as a human being, I owed him perfection. If I'm going to make a claim on his presence in heaven. God's holy. He's perfect. No one waltzes into his presence who's unlike him. Heaven has no sin in it. If you die with your sin, you're going to the place where sin is eternally punished. So where's your sin? Well, as we'll see next week in our teaching from Romans 7, it's nailed to the cross. It's in the body of Jesus. So to be free from the law means I no longer owe God that perfection to be right with him, to be accepted by him. Christ has supplied it. I'm accepted. This is the whole point of justification. Just as if I'd never sinned, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so when that glory captures your imagination, does it make you want to sin? The love of God for you, giving his son on the hideous cross, when you think about the suffering of Jesus, does that make you want to sin? Not if the Holy Spirit's rightly applying it to your heart. Technically, this has a, 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 a theological term called antinomianism. Anti against namas, the law. It showed up in something called the, the anti-lordship salvation teaching Several decades ago, you can have Jesus as Savior but not Lord, and this created this awful division dividing Jesus and his offices. You know, he is one. He's Savior and Lord. You receive him as Savior and Lord. Okay, that's a false statement. When Paul says we're free from the law, he means it doesn't matter how we live because Jesus has forgiven us all our sins. Of course it matters how you live. You're a walking demonstration of the character of God. You're a walking demonstration of what a new creation is. 17, true or false? The believer is free from the power of sin, but not its presence. The believer is free from the power of sin, but not its presence. 
Yes. Sin is still present with us. Yeah, that's right. We got good. Sin is present. We're no longer slaves to it. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you're tempted, right, um, um, no temptation has ever, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has ever taken you, but it's as common to man. And God will supply the way of escape. It is, yes, you need to think like a person who says, I don't have to sin. I don't have to give in to that. I don't have to be full of pride. And of course, this takes an immense amount of intentional work bringing these things to pass. Sanctification is work. We're cooperating with the Lord. It is synergistic. Sanctification is the work of two parties, you and the Holy Spirit. It's not let go and let God. No. It's this amazing balance, as we'll see in some future lessons, of of, um, availing yourself all of God's power, but being renewed in the spirit of your mind, putting off and putting on. So that's a true statement. The believer is free from the power of sin, but not its presence. 18, true or false. It's helpful to grasp the notion of the already but not yet. It's helpful to understand the already but not yet. Yes, that's a true statement. Why is it helpful? Because it explains why you sometimes feel like a walking contradiction. You say you love God. You say he has delivered you from your sins. You say you're a new creation and you find yourself thinking, acting, reacting like one that isn't. That's because you are already justified. You're not yet fully sanctified. You're not fully like Jesus. That day comes when you die and you leave this body behind. You leave sin behind. So the already and the not yet, we live in this tension. The kingdom of God has come. It's not already fully here yet. We're new creations. It doesn't look yet what we shall be. That's 1 John 3, right? Um, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And this is what we are, and yet it does not appear as yet what we will be. In fact, if we saw each other what we will be, we would be tempted to fall down and worship each other. Isn't that what C.S. Lewis said to to husbands? If you saw your wife, I think this was Lewis, as she will be in glory, you'll be tempted to worship her. I know Janice isn't tempted to worship me the way she sees me now. Thankfully, she has a Jesus she can worship. Okay? It's helpful to grasp the already, but the not yet. It explains our frailty, our failures. We're not yet glorified but glory is so certain that in Romans 8 we'll see that Paul says those whom he foreknew he predestined to conform to the image of his son those whom he predestined he justified those whom he justified he also glorified it's the one place in the New Testament glory is past tense See, the doctrine of glory is its future. We're looking for it. We're already, but not yet. We're not yet glorified. But in what sense can Paul say, if he foreknew you, he predestined you, he justified you, he glorified you, in what sense can he say you're glorified? Union with Christ. If it's true of Christ, it's true of you. Christ is glorified. Where is he seated right now? At the right hand of the Father. 
And this is how Paul unpacks it in Ephesians 2. When you were dead in your sins, he made you alive together with Christ, raised you up with Christ, and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. That's glorified. So in that sense, we're glorified. In that sense, positionally, legally, by virtue of our union with Christ. Existentially, there's a whole lot less of glory here yet to be experienced. Okay? Isn't that great? Number 19, true or false? Paul believes his flesh, his physical body is evil. Paul believes that his flesh, his physical body is evil. We're getting some thumbs down. Good. That is a false statement. At the end of Romans 6, he identifies the instruments of the flesh, and as it were, they're neutral. Don't go on, he says, presenting the instruments of your flesh, your mind, your emotions, your affections, your hand, your tongue. Don't present them to sin as instruments of righteousness. Present them to God as instruments of, uh, I'm sorry, unrighteousness. Present them to God as instruments of righteousness. So this is the glory of being a Christian. Everything about me humanly, what's fleshly about me, can be used in the service of God and for his glory. The flesh is good. My goodness, Jesus is in flesh right now. We're not Platonists. We don't believe in dualism. Flesh is bad, spirit is good. We're not Gnostics. The flesh is, Jesus came in the flesh to say the material world is good. What are we looking forward to, beloved? The new heavens and the new earth. A new earth in which our physical bodies will enjoy material forever. Flesh is good. The problem is, right now, my flesh is inhabited by uh, indwelling sin. And it gets the better of me. That's why I need a savior every moment of every day. Okay, 20, true or false. In this life, we never advance beyond fighting sin daily. In this life, we're always going to be fighting sin daily. Yes, you'll hear more about this in the sermon. I've made it that point already today. It's, it's, it's Paul's point here and. Romans 6, don't let sin reign in your world of body. You should obey its lust. We'll hear more about how to do that in Romans 8. We're going to get into 7. In a sense, I'm getting you launched for our study of 7. We're going to divide 7 into three sections, uh, 1 through 6, 7 through 13, and 14 to the end. That's the way it breaks down for Paul. I'm setting you up for this battle with indwelling sin. So that is uh, an, uh, a true statement. In this life, we never advance beyond fighting sin. Get used to it. You woke up this morning, and if you're in union with Christ, sin's at war with you. The only question is, am I going to intentionally battle indwelling sin or not? And if not, it's going to get the better of me. It's going to get the better of me. And if it gets the better of me, guess what's going to happen? It's going to get the better of my relationship with you. So where you have relational strife in families, churches, organizations, it starts with the individual. You hear more about, you heard about that from Paul Cornwell. You hear a little bit more about that uh, in the sermon this morning. 9.51. Right on schedule. All right. Uh, true or false? 21. Now these next three questions, these are the last three questions in the test. These are specifically going to be launching us into seven. So if you're not sure of the answer, 
give yourself a break because we haven't got into seven yet. But 21, true or false, the law can't produce what it commands. The law cannot produce what it commands. That is a true statement. What's wrong with the law? Is it the law's fault that it can't produce what it commands? No, the fault is where? It's with us, with our inability to give the law what it demands. The law itself can't produce what it commands. Hopefully you've been reading through Colossians. I started my reading through Colossians uh, Thursday morning because Paul gave us the assignment Wednesday night. So Colossians 1 and then 2 was on uh, two was on Friday, 4 this morning. Anybody read Colossians 4 this morning just out of curiosity? Okay, but you saw there at the end of 2 that he's addressing people with all these man-made rules. He says, which have no power against the indulgence of the flesh. Rules can't do it. The classic example for me is David, King David. He is, the, as the king of Israel, he is the custodian of the law of God. He was technically the one who knew it better than anybody else and had to be responsible that the people of God knew the law of God. He knew the Ten Commandments. He knew love the Lord your God with all your heart. He knew Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He knew Six, you shall not murder. He knew Ten, you shall not covet. There he is on the rooftop there, and he's looking at Bathsheba. He knows the law of God, and in and of itself it has no power to keep him from lusting, adultery, murder with Uriah, all that kind of stuff. He needed the power of the Spirit to apply obedience to his heart. The law cannot produce what it commands. 22, true or false? We'll only delight in the law once we're in heaven. You will only delight in the law of God once you're in heaven. No, that's false. We're going to see in chapter 7, 22, Paul says, I delight in the law in my inner being. I mean, that's a sure mark of a believer. You read Psalm 19, you read 119, and it resonates with you. You love the law of God. He's given you a hunger for the word of truth. You read what God wants, what God commands, and you go, well, of course, Lord. Why wouldn't I want what you say about yourself? It's got to be good for me. It's got to bring glory to you. It's got to be good for other people in my life. So that is a false statement. We'll only delight in the law once we're in heaven. Well, we'll have pure and perfect delight in it if we even need it in heaven. I don't think so. There'll be nothing to law against. We'll be sinless. We won't ever be tempted to sin. That's a false statement. And last question. 23, true or false? The proper view of the law is it is holy, righteous, and good. That's a direct quote. Got a thumbs up from Frank. That's a direct quote from chapter 7, verse 12. Um, and we're going to see why Paul is driven to make this statement. He's, 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 he wants to correct the impression that he's, that he's a man saying the law is bad. And, he's gonna, and we'll see this next week in our study. So if you want to read ahead, 7, 1 through 6. Uh, um, he, he wants to correct any impression when he says, we're not under law but under grace. And he, he, he alludes to the impotence of the law. No, he's going to correct any impression. No, the law is holy, righteous, and good. How much we delight in it as an expression of God's will, as a reflection of God's character, as a path that leads us in a place that is safe. We'll never hurt ourselves. We'll never hurt our neighbors in this uh, obeying this wonderful law. Okay, so there's the test.
I hope you did well. Chalk any of your wrong answers up to bad test questions, right? Ambiguous questions, that's on me. I just sort of wanted to lasso uh, five and six and put it in the form of questions to see if, uh, if we were tracking together on these things. I think we've set the table for seven. Good. All right, I get to pray for you all. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess together that though we are new in Christ, absolutely righteous in your sight legally, we've been raised with Jesus, seated with him in the heavenly places, freed from the power of sin. We don't live this way. We are really slothful to take up to embrace, to be intentional about all the glories of being in union with Jesus. So forgive us for that. We have no one to blame but ourselves. Teach us, help us. Work into us this mind of Paul that we see revealed in, in the writing of Romans, particularly 5, 6, 7, and 8. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that are present on this Zoom call this morning. Uh, they're present, no doubt, because they love you. They love your word. They're hungry. They've embraced the gospel. They desire to be more like Jesus. These are beautiful testaments of your grace working in them. So pour out into their hearts the love of God. Give them comfort. Give them peace. Give them strength, fortitude. Give us all a deeper hatred of sin, a greater love of righteousness. The pleasure of seeing what life is like, yielding the members of our bodies to in, uh, righteousness, not sin. Help but make us acutely aware, as Paul concludes 6, of what we were like when we were yielding ourselves to sin. What was that? Look at that. Disdain that. And uh, we pray together for Wallace that you'll be healing her, reconciling her, bringing her the peace. We all desire this uh, good work begun by Paul and Allison uh, last week. So, so the seed sown in that work and the, and, the, and the working of the word of God, particularly Colossians as we read it, may that do its good work. We pray for Jesus' sake that he would be magnified Revealed, known, savored, worshipped. Amen. Well, thank you all so much. See you soon. Thank you. All right.